0: Section 36 Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10 section 36 cuvier 1769 to 1832 by spencer trotter modern zoological science is indebted in a large measure to the mind and labor of the three french savants lamarck saint hilaire and cuvier Throughout the troubled times of the French Revolution, these three friends and co-laborers pursued their studies, arranging and interpreting the facts which they accumulated, and enriching the literature of the science to which they devoted their lives. Of the three, Cuvier stands forth with greatest prominence today, as the one who, by his studies in the structure and classification of animals, and through his reconstruction of the fossil animals of the paris basin has left the most enduring mark upon the literature of the subject georges leopold Christian frederick d'agobert cuvier was born at montbelliard in alsace on the twenty third of august seventeen sixty nine His mother devoted herself to the careful training and development of his growing mind, and in very early life he gave evidence of extraordinary intellectual endowment. Naturally industrious, and possessed of a remarkable memory and the power of concentration, young Cuvier, by the age of fourteen— had mastered the rudiments of several languages, both ancient and modern, had acquired a considerable knowledge of mathematics, had read widely in history, and was proficient in drawing. He very early showed a decided bent toward scientific pursuits, and drew his first inspiration from the works of Buffon, who was then at the zenith of his fame. While at school, he formed a society among his fellows for the reading and discussion of various subjects of a scientific and literary nature. Cuvier's talents became known to Prince Charles, the reigning Duke of Württemberg, who gave him a free education in the University of Stuttgart. After completing his university course with honor, he sought for a public office under the government of Prince Charles. But his parents' circumstances, his father being a retired officer of a Swiss regiment in the service of France, forced him to abandon this idea, and at the age of nineteen he accepted the position of a tutor in the family of a nobleman who resided at Caen in Normandy. This proved to be the determining event in Cuvier's life, He found in the mollusk fauna of the nearby sea-coast a fascinating subject for study, and devoted all of his spare time to the investigation of the structure and relations of the various forms that came to his notice the abbe tessier a member of the academy of sciences who had fled to normandy from paris during the reign of terror made the acquaintance of the young naturalist and introduced him by correspondence to a number of the most eminent scientific men of paris one of these men was geoffroy saint hilaire and through his influence Cuvier was invited to assist Mertrude, the professor of comparative anatomy in the Museum of Natural History at the Jardin des Plantes. From this time on, he threw all the energies of his remarkable mind into the study of animals and the building up of the museum. The collections which he originated rank among the finest in the world. In 1802, Cuvier was appointed one of six inspector-generals to organize lyceums in a number of the French towns, and ever after gave a great part of his time and thought to the subject of education. The influence of his work in this direction is felt to-day in every institution of public instruction throughout France on the annexation of italy he made three different visits to that country in order to reorganize the old academies and although a protestant he was entrusted with the organization of the university at rome in a similar manner he remodeled the educational systems throughout holland and belgium and his reports on these questions are teeming with interest Cuvier felt that the strength of a nation lay in the sound education of all classes, the lower as well as the upper, and to his enlightened views may be traced much of the excellent system of primary education that prevails in these countries today. Under the bigoted Bourbon government, the despotic rule of Napoleon and the liberal reign of Louis-Philippe Cuvier maintained his post, and throughout the events of the Hundred Days of 1815, he still held a high position in the Imperial University, of which he had been made a life member of the Council at its Foundation in 1808. He held a distinctive place as a member of the Council of State, as minister of the interior as chancellor of the university and member of the protestant faculty of theology louis philippe conferred on him the title of baron he lived at the jardin des plantes surrounded by his family and friends and his home was the centre of men of science from all parts of the world On the 8th of May, 1832, after delivering an unusually eloquent introductory lecture at the College of France, he was stricken with paralysis, and though he rallied sufficiently to preside the next day at the Council of State, he died on the following Sunday. The chief value of Cuvier's work in general literature lies in the philosophical deductions which he drew from his studies. Lamarck had advanced the theory of the origin of species as a result of the action of the natural conditions of existence, impressing and molding the plastic organism. Saint-Hilaire had advanced the doctrine of homology, i.e., the same structure appearing in a different form in different animals as a result of a difference of function. Cuvier opposed both of these theories, holding that each animal was a separate and distinct result of a special creative act, and that each part of its organization was expressly created to meet certain wants. Though the point of view of these three friends differed, yet each held the germ of truth. The action of the environment and the doctrine of homology are vital questions today, and Cuvier's deductions are equally pregnant with the truth, only their author viewed the facts as special creative acts of the divine intelligence. Probably the most wide-reaching effects of Cuvier's work came from his study and restoration of the fossil animals of the Paris Basin and the consequent recognition of the tertiary as a distinct geological age. From his investigations in comparative anatomy, he proved that the parts of an animal agree so exactly that from seeing one fragment the whole can be known. This recognition of the correlation of parts was one of the grandest achievements of his mastermind mind. Cuvier's scientific publications were numerous. His best-known works are Le Reine Animal, The Animal Kingdom, published in four octavo volumes in 1817, and Recherche sur les ossements fossiles*, inquiry concerning fossil bones. This latter work is probably the most enduring monument to his fame, as it laid the basis of the present science of paleontology. The first volume of this work is a masterpiece of scientific literature and has been widely translated. The English translation by Professor Jameson of Edinburgh, entitled Essay on the Theory of the Earth, has passed through several editions. Selection of Changes in the Structure of the Earth from The Theory of the Earth by Cuvier The lowest and most level parts of the earth, when penetrated to a very great depth, exhibit nothing but horizontal strata composed of various substances, and containing almost all of them innumerable marine productions. Similar strata with the same kind of productions compose the hills even to a great height. Sometimes the shells are so numerous as to constitute the entire body of the stratum, they are almost everywhere in such a perfect state of preservation that even the smallest of them retain their most delicate parts their sharpest ridges and their finest and tenderest processes they are found in elevations far above the level of every part of the ocean and in places to which the sea could not be conveyed by any existing cause they are not only enclosed in loose sand but are often encrusted and penetrated on all sides by the hardest stones every part of the earth every hemisphere every continent every island of any size exhibits the same phenomenon We are therefore forcibly led to believe not only that the sea has at one period or another covered all our plains, but that it must have remained there for a long time, and in a state of tranquillity, which circumstance was necessary for the formation of deposits so extensive, so thick, in part so solid, and containing exuviae so perfectly preserved. The time is past for ignorance to assert that these remains of organized bodies are mere lucis naturae, productions generated in the womb of the earth by its own creative powers. A nice and scrupulous comparison of their forms, of their contexture, and frequently even of their composition, cannot detect the slightest difference between these shells and the shells which still inhabit the sea. They have therefore once lived in the sea, and been deposited by it. The sea, consequently, must have rested in the places where the deposition has taken place. Hence it is evident the basin or reservoir containing the sea has undergone some change at least, either in extent, or in situation, or in both. Such is the result of the very first search, and of the most superficial examination." The traces of revolutions become still more apparent and decisive when we ascend a little higher, and approach nearer to the foot of the great chains of mountains. There are still found many beds of shells, some of these are even larger and more solid. The shells are quite as numerous and as entirely preserved, but they are not of the same species with those which were found in the less elevated regions. The strata which contain them are not so generally horizontal. They have various degrees of inclination, and are sometimes situated vertically. While in the plains and low hills, it was necessary to dig deep in order to detect the succession of the strata. Here we perceive them by means of the valleys which time or violence has produced, and which disclose their edges to the eye of the observer at the bottom of these declivities huge masses of their debris are collected and form round hills the height of which is augmented by the operation of every thaw and of every storm these inclined or vertical strata which form the ridges of the secondary mountains do not rest on the horizontal strata of the hills which are situated at their base and serve as their first steps but on the contrary are situated underneath them the latter are placed upon the declivities of the former when we dig through the horizontal strata in the neighbourhood of the inclined strata the inclined strata are invariably found below nay sometimes when the inclined strata are not too much elevated their strata is surmounted by horizontal strata The inclined strata are therefore more ancient than the horizontal strata, and as they must necessarily have been formed in a horizontal position, they have been subsequently shifted into their inclined or vertical position, and that too before the horizontal strata were placed above them. Thus the sea, previous to the formation of the horizontal strata, had formed others which by some means have been broken, lifted up, and overturned in a thousand ways there had therefore been also at least one change in the basin of that sea which preceded ours it had also experienced at least one revolution and as several of these inclined strata which it had formed first are elevated above the level of the horizontal strata which have succeeded and which surround them this revolution while it gave them their present inclination had also caused them to project above the level of the sea so as to form islands or at least rocks and inequalities And this must have happened whether one of their edges was lifted up above the water, or the depression of the opposite edge caused the water to subside. This is the second result, not less obvious nor less clearly demonstrated than the first, to every one who will take the trouble of studying carefully the remains by which it is illustrated and proved if we institute a more detailed comparison between the various strata and those remains of animals which they contain we shall soon discover still more numerous differences among them indicating a proportional number of changes in their condition the sea has not always deposited stony substances of the same kind it has observed a regular succession as to the nature of its deposits the more ancient the strata are so much the more uniform and extensive are they and the more recent they are the more limited are they and the more variation is observed in them at small distances thus the great catastrophes which have produced revolutions in the basin of the sea were preceded accompanied and followed by changes in the nature of the fluid and of the substances which it held in solution and when the surface of the seas came to be divided by islands and projecting ridges different changes took place in every separate basin Amidst these changes of the general fluid, it must have been almost impossible for the same kind of animals to continue to live, nor did they do so, in fact. Their species, and even their genera, change with the strata, and though the same species occasionally recur at small distances, it is generally the case that the shells of the ancient strata, have forms peculiar to themselves, that they gradually disappear, till they are not to be seen at all in the recent strata, still less in the existing seas, in which indeed we never discover their corresponding species, and where several, even of their genera, are not to be found, that on the contrary the shells of the recent strata resemble, at respects, the genus, those which still exist in the sea and that in the last formed and loosest of these strata there are some species which the eye of the most expert naturalists cannot distinguish from those which at present inhabit the ocean in animal nature therefore there has been a succession of changes corresponding to those which have taken place in the chemical nature of the fluid and when the sea last receded from our continent, its inhabitants were not very different from those which it still continues to support. Finally, if we examine, with greater care, these remains of organized bodies, we shall discover, in the midst even of the most ancient secondary strata, other strata that are crowded with animal or vegetable productions, which belong to the land and to fresh water and amongst the most recent strata, that is, the strata which are nearest the surface, there are some of them in which land animals are buried under heaps of marine productions. Thus, the various catastrophes of our planet have not only caused the different parts of our continent to rise by degrees from the basin of the sea, but it has also frequently happened that lands which had been laid dry have been again covered by the water, in consequence either of these lands sinking down below the level of the sea or of the sea being raised above the level of the lands the particular portions of the earth also which the sea has abandoned by its last retreat had been laid dry once before and had at that time produced quadrupeds birds plants and all kinds of terrestrial productions it had then been inundated by the sea which has since retired from it and left it to be occupied by its own proper inhabitants the changes which have taken place in the productions of the Shelley strata, therefore, have not been entirely owing to a gradual and general retreat of the waters, but to successive eruptions and retreats, the final result of which, however, has been an universal depression of the level of the sea. These repeated eruptions and retreats of the sea have been neither slow nor gradual, most of the catastrophes which have occasioned them have been sudden and this is easily proved especially with regard to the last of them the traces of which are most conspicuous in the northern regions it has left the carcasses of some large quadrupeds which the ice had arrested and which are preserved even to the present day with their skin their hair and their flesh if they had not been frozen as soon as killed they must quickly have been decomposed by putrefaction but this eternal frost could not have taken possession of the regions which these animals inhabited except by the same cause which destroyed them this cause therefore must have been as sudden as its effect The breaking to pieces and overturnings of the strata which happened in former catastrophes show plainly enough that they were sudden and violent like the last, and the heaps of debris and rounded pebbles which are found in various places among the solid strata demonstrate the vast force of the motions excited in the mass of waters by these overturnings. Life, therefore, has been often disturbed on this earth by terrible events, calamities which, at their commencement, have perhaps moved and overturned to a great depth the entire outer crust of the globe, but which, since these first commotions, have uniformly acted at a less depth and less generally. Numberless living beings have been the victims of these catastrophes. Some have been destroyed by sudden inundations. Others have been laid dry in consequence of the bottom of the seas being instantaneously elevated. Their races even have become extinct, and have left no memorial of them except some small fragment which the naturalist can scarcely recognize. Such are the conclusions which necessarily result from the objects that we meet with at every step of our inquiry, and which we can always verify by examples drawn from almost every country. Every part of the globe bears the impress of these great and terrible events so distinctly that they must be visible to all who are qualified to read their history in the remains which they have left behind but what is still more astonishing and not less certain there have not been always living creatures on the earth and it is easy for the observer to discover the period at which animal productions began to be deposited As we ascend to higher points of elevation and advance towards the lofty summits of the mountains, the remains of marine animals, that multitude of shells we have spoken of, begin very soon to grow rare, and at length disappear altogether. We arrive at strata of a different nature, which contain no vestige at all of living creatures. Nevertheless, their crystallization and even the nature of their strata show that they also have been formed in a fluid their inclined position and their slopes show that they also have been moved and overturned the oblique manner in which they sink under the shelly strata shows that they have been formed before these and the height to which their bare and rugged tops are elevated above all the shelly strata shows that their summits have never again been covered by the sea since they were raised up out of its bosom Such are those primitive or primordial mountains which traverse our continents in various directions, rising above the clouds, separating the basins of the rivers from one another, serving by means of their eternal snows as reservoirs for feeding the springs and forming in some measure the skeleton, or as it were the rough framework, of the earth the sharp peaks and rugged indentations which mark their summits and strike the eye at a great distance are so many proofs of the violent manner in which they have been elevated their appearance in this respect is very different from that of the rounded mountains and the hills with flat surfaces whose recently formed masses have always remained in the situation in which they were quietly deposited by the sea which last covered them these proofs become more obvious as we approach the valleys have no longer those gently sloping sides or those alternately salient and re-entrant angles opposite to one another which seem to indicate the beds of ancient streams they widen and contract without any general rule their waters sometimes expand into lakes and sometimes descend in torrents and here and there the rocks suddenly approaching from each side form traverse dykes over which the waters fall in cataracts the shattered strata of these valleys expose their edges on one side and present on the other side large portions of their surface lying obliquely they do not correspond in height but those which on one side form the summit of the declivity often dip so deep on the other as to be altogether concealed yet amidst all this confusion some naturalists have thought that they perceived a certain degree of order prevailing and that among these immense beds of rocks broken and overturned though they be a regular succession is observed which is nearly the same in all the different chains of mountains according to them the granite which surmounts every other rock also dips under every other rock and is the most ancient of any that has yet been discovered in the place assigned it by nature the central ridges of most of the mountain chains are composed of it slaty rocks such as clay-slate granular quartz grey and mica-slate, rest upon its sides and form lateral chains. Granular, foliated limestone or marble, and other calcareous rocks that do not contain shells, rest upon the slate, forming the exterior ranges, and are the last formations by which this ancient, uninhabited sea seems to have prepared itself for the production of its beds of shells on all occasions even in districts that lie at a distance from the great mountain chains where the more recent strata have been digged through and the external covering of the earth penetrated to a considerable depth nearly the same order of stratification has been found as that already described the crystallized marbles never cover the shelly strata the granite in mass never rests upon the crystallized marble except in a few places where it seems to have been formed of granites of newer epochs in one word the foregoing arrangement appears to be general and must therefore depend upon general causes which have on all occasions exerted the same influence from one extremity of the earth to the other hence it is impossible to deny that the waters of the sea have formerly and for a long time covered those masses of matter which now constitute our highest mountains and farther that these waters during a long time did not support any living bodies Thus it has not been only since the commencement of animal life that these numerous changes and revolutions have taken place in the constitution of the external covering of our globe, for the masses formed previous to that event have suffered changes, as well as those which have been formed since they have also suffered violent changes in their positions and a part of these assuredly took place while they existed alone and before they were covered over by the shelly masses the proof of this lies in the overturnings the disruptions and the fissures which are observable in their strata as well as in those of more recent formation which are there even in greater number and better defined But these primitive masses have also suffered other revolutions posterior to the formation of the secondary strata, and have perhaps given rise to, or at least have partaken of, some portion of the revolutions and changes which these latter strata have experienced. There are actually considerable portions of the primitive strata uncovered, although placed in lower situations than many of the secondary strata and we cannot conceive how it should have so happened unless the primitive strata in these places had forced themselves into view after the formation of those which are secondary in some countries we find numerous and prodigiously large blocks of primitive substances scattered over the surface of the secondary strata and separated by deep valleys from the peaks or ridges whence these blocks must have been derived it is necessary therefore either that these blocks must have been thrown into those situations by means of eruptions or that the valleys which otherwise must have stopped their course did not exist at the time of their being transported to their present sites Thus we have a collection of facts, a series of epochs anterior to the present time, and of which the successive steps may be ascertained with perfect certainty, although the periods which intervened cannot be determined with any degree of precision. These epochs form so many fixed points, answering as rules for directing our inquiries, respecting this ancient chronology of the earth. OF THE FABULOUS ANIMALS OF THE ANCIENT WRITERS Perhaps some persons may be disposed to employ an opposite train of argument, and to allege that the ancients were not only acquainted with as many large quadrupeds as we are, as has been already shown, but that they actually described several others which we do not now know, that we are rash in considering the accounts of all such animals as fabulous that we ought to search for them with the utmost care before concluding that we have acquired a complete knowledge of the existing animal creation and in fine that among those animals which we presume to be fabulous we may perhaps discover when better acquainted with them the actual originals of the bones of those species which are now unknown perhaps some may even conceive that the various monsters essential ornaments of the history of the heroic ages of almost every nation are precisely those very species which it was necessary to destroy in order to allow the establishment of civilized societies thus theseus and bellerophon must have been more fortunate than all the nations of more modern days who have only been able to drive back the noxious animals into the deserts and ill-peopled regions but have never yet succeeded in exterminating a single species it is easy to reply to the foregoing objections by examining the descriptions that are left us by the ancients of those unknown animals and by inquiring into their origins now the greater number of those animals have an origin purely mythological and of this origin the descriptions given of them bear the most unequivocal marks as in almost all of them we see merely the different parts of known animals united by an unbridled imagination and in contradiction to every established law of nature Those which have been invented by the poetical fancy of the Greeks have at least some grace and elegance in their composition, resembling the fantastic decorations which are still observable on the ruins of some ancient buildings, and which have been multiplied by the fertile genius of Raphael in his paintings. Like these, they unite forms which please the eye by agreeable contours and fanciful combinations, but which are utterly repugnant to nature and reason, being merely the productions of inventive and playful genius, or perhaps meant as emblematical representations of metaphysical or moral propositions, veiled under mystical hieroglyphics after the oriental manner. Learned men may be permitted to employ their time and ingenuity in attempts to decipher the mystic knowledge concealed under the forms of the Sphinx of Thebes, the Pegasus of Thessaly, the Minotaur of Crete, or the Chimaera of Epirus, but it would be folly to expect seriously to find such monsters in nature we might as well endeavor to find the animals of Daniel, or the beasts of the Apocalypse, in some hitherto unexplored recesses of the globe. Neither can we look for the mythological animals of the Persians, creatures of a still bolder imagination, such as the martichor, or destroyer of men, having a human head on the body of a lion, and the tail of a scorpion the griffin or guardian of hidden treasures half-eagle and half-lion or the cartazanon or wild ass armed with a long horn on its forehead cetesius who reports these as actual living animals has been looked upon by some authors as an inventor of fables whereas he only attributes real existence to hieroglyphical representations these strange compositions of fancy have been seen in modern times on the ruins of persepolis it is probable that their hidden meanings may never be ascertained but at all events we are quite certain that they were never intended to be representations of real animals Agatharchides, another fabricator of animals, drew his information in all probability from a similar source. The ancient monuments of Egypt still furnish us with numerous fantastic representations in which the parts of different kinds of creatures are strangely combined. Men with the heads of animals, and animals with the heads of men, which have given rise to cynocephaly, satyrs, and sphinxes the custom of exhibiting in the same sculpture in bas-relief men of very different heights of making kings and conquerors gigantic while their subjects and vassals are represented as only a fourth or fifth part of their size must have given rise to the fable of the pygmies in some corner of these monuments agatharcides must have discovered his carnivorous bull whose mouth extending from ear to ear devoured every other animal that came in his way but scarcely any naturalist will acknowledge the existence of any such animal since nature has never joined cloven hoofs and horns with teeth adapted for cutting and devouring animal food there may have been other figures equally strange with these either among those monuments of egypt which have not been able to resist the ravages of time or in the ancient temples of ethiopia and arabia which have been destroyed by the religious zeal of the abyssinians and mahometans The monuments of India teem with such figures, but the combinations in these are so ridiculously extravagant that they have never imposed even upon the most credulous. Monsters with a hundred arms and twenty heads of different kinds are far too absurd to be believed. Nay, the inhabitants of China and Japan have their imaginary animals, which they represent as real, and that too, in their religious books, the mexicans had them in short they are to be found among every people whose idolatry has not yet acquired some degree of refinement but is there any one who could possibly pretend to discover amidst the realities of animal nature what are thus so plainly the productions of ignorance and superstition And yet some travelers, influenced by a desire to make themselves famous, have gone so far as to pretend that they saw these fancied beings, or, deceived by a slight resemblance into which they were too careless to inquire, they have identified these with creatures that actually exist. In their eyes, large baboons or monkeys have become cynocephali, and sphinxes real men with long tails. It is thus that St. Augustine imagined he had seen a satyr. Real animals, observed and described with equal inaccuracy, may have given rise to some of these ideal monsters. Thus we can have no doubt of the existence of the hyena, though the back of this animal is not supported by a single bone, and though it does not change its sex yearly as alleged by Pliny. Perhaps the carnivorous bull may only have been the two-horned rhinoceros falsely described. M. de Weltheim considers the auriferous ants of Herodotus as the corsacs of modern naturalists. The most famous among these fabulous animals of the ancients was the unicorn. Its real existence has been obstinately asserted even in the present day, or at least proofs of its existence have been eagerly sought for. Three several animals are frequently mentioned by the ancients as having only one horn placed on the middle of the forehead. The oryx of Africa, having cloven hoofs, the hair placed reversely to that of other animals, its height equal to that of the bull or even of the rhinoceros, and said to resemble deer and goats in its form. The Indian ass, having solid hoofs, and the monoceros, properly so-called, whose feet are sometimes compared to those of the lion, and sometimes to those of the elephant, and is therefore considered as having divided feet. The horse-unicorn and the bull-unicorn are doubtless both referable to the Indian ass, for even the latter is described as having solid hooves. We may therefore be fully assured that these animals have never really existed, as no solitary horns have ever found their way into our collections, excepting those of the rhinoceros and narwhal. After careful consideration, it is impossible that we should give any credit to rude sketches made by savages upon rocks. Entirely ignorant of perspective, and wishing to represent the outlines of a straight-horned antelope in profile, they could only give the figure one horn, and thus they produced an oryx. The oryxes that are seen on the Egyptian monuments likewise are probably nothing more than productions of the stiff style imposed on the sculptors of the country by religious prejudices. Several of their profiles of quadrupeds show only one fore and one hinder leg, and it is probable that the same rule led them also to represent only one horn. Perhaps their figures may have been copied after individuals that had lost one of their horns by accident, a circumstance that often happens to the chamois and the sega, species of the antelope genus and this would be quite sufficient to establish the error all the ancients however have not represented the oryx as having only one horn oppian expressly attributes two to this animal and alien mentions one that had four finally if this animal was ruminant and cloven-footed we are quite certain that its frontal bone must have been divided longitudinally into two and that it could not possibly as it is very justly remarked by camper have had a horn placed upon the suture it may be asked however what two-horned animals could have given an idea of the oryx in the forms in which it has been transmitted down to us even independent of the notion of a single horn to this i answer as already done by pallas that it was the straight-horned antelope oryx of gemelin improperly named pezon by buffon This animal inhabits the deserts of Africa, and must frequently approach the confines of Egypt, and appears to be that which is represented in the hieroglyphics. It equals the ox in height, while the shape of its body approaches to that of a stag, and its straight horns present exceedingly formidable weapons, hard almost as iron, and sharp-pointed like javelins its hair is whitish it has black spots and streaks on its face and the hair on its back points forward such is the description given by naturalists and the fables of the egyptian priests which have occasioned the insertion of its figure among their hieroglyphics do not require to have been founded in nature Supposing that an individual of this species may have been seen which had lost one of its horns by some accident, it may have been taken as a representative of the entire race, and erroneously adopted by Aristotle, to be copied by all his successors. All this is quite possible and even natural, and gives not the smallest evidence for the existence of a single-horned species of antelope. In regard to the Indian ass, of the alexipharmic virtues of whose horn the ancients speak, we find the eastern nations of the present day attributing exactly the same property of counteracting poison to the horn of the rhinoceros. When this horn was first imported into Greece, nothing probably was known respecting the animal to which it belonged, and accordingly it was not known to Aristotle agatharcides is the first author by whom it is mentioned in the same manner ivory was known to the ancients long before the animal from which it is procured and perhaps some of their travellers may have given to the rhinoceros the name of indian ass with as much propriety as the romans denominated the elephant the bull of lucania everything which they relate of the strength, size, and ferocity of their wild ass of India, corresponds sufficiently with the rhinoceros. In succeeding times, when the rhinoceros came to be better known to naturalists, finding that former authors mentioned a single-horned animal under the name of Indian ass, they concluded without any examination that it must be quite a distinct creature having solid hooves we have remaining a detailed description of the indian ass written by cetesius but as we have already seen that this must have been taken from the ruins of persepolis it should go for nothing in the real history of the animal when there afterwards appeared more exact descriptions of an animal having several toes or hoofs on each foot the ancients conceived it to be a third species of one-horned animals to which they gave the name of monoceros these double and even triple references are most frequent among ancient writers because most of their works which have come down to us were mere compilations because even aristotle himself has often mixed borrowed facts with those which had come under his own observation and because the habit of critically investigating the authorities of previous writers was as little known among ancient naturalists as among their historians from all these reasonings and digressions it may be fairly concluded that the large animals of the ancient continent with which we are now acquainted were known to the ancients and that all the animals of which the ancients have left descriptions and which are now unknown were merely fabulous It also follows that the large animals of the three anciently known quarters of the world were very soon known to the people who frequented their coasts. It may also be concluded that no large species remains to be discovered in America, as there is no good reason that can be assigned why any such should exist in that country with which we are unacquainted and in fact none has been discovered there during the last hundred and fifty years from all these considerations it may be safely concluded as shall be more minutely explained in the sequel that none of the large species of quadrupeds whose remains are now found embedded in regular rocky strata are at all similar to any of the known living species that this circumstance is by no means the mere effect of chance or because the species to which these fossil bones have belonged are still concealed in the desert and uninhabited parts of the world and have hitherto escaped the observation of travellers but that this astonishing phenomenon has proceeded from general causes and that the careful investigation of it affords one of the best means for discovering and explaining the nature of these causes End of section 36